WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guests are the high mind behind comics like Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty, Batman Beyond Neo Year, and the upcoming Star Trek from IDW, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much. We're really very glad to be here. It's uh, our favorite thing to do is talk about comics. Uh, and especially it's great to be on a podcast uh, where two best friends talk about comics, considering we got our entire start as two best friends who talk about comics. Yeah, this is, it seems like a very appropriate pairing for us. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, this is going to be the uh, the best double friend date ever. That's the energy <laughs> I'm going for tonight. <laughs> uh, Love that. Know, given you guys actually actively refer to yourselves as the hive mind, have you ever literally finished each other's sandwiches? Uh, often, often. Um, though, though, though f- part of the, I think part of the fun of, of what we do is that we don't do that necessarily naturally. I mean, a lot of the times we do, and certainly in writing, we find that, um, by, by sort of nature of our process, sometimes, uh, Colin will be writing one half of an issue and I'll be writing the other half of an issue. Cause that's, that's how we work, uh, in general, uh, for first draft. And we might both come upon the same phrase or the same mm-hmm. thematic because we'll have talked through the thematic but we maybe haven't landed that exact beautiful like way of saying it yet and then we'll we'll get to each other's scripts and realize we like both came to the the thing and then we have to figure <laughs> out all right is this worth having on both sides of it can we make this like a thematic or should this really just be punctuated on one side of it or the other it's that, that's always the fun part of this it's like figuring out where we accidentally finished each other's sandwiches kind of typical icebreaker for first-time guests you know what are what are some of the first comics that each of you remembers reading uh colin why don't we start with you yeah um i first kind of started off actually wildly enough uh, on some captain america was some of the first books that i actually had read uh i got a subscription uh through my scholastic newsletter i could get national geographic or captain america comics uh, so you can expect what you can you can suspect which uh which one i chose mm-hmm. i love them folded up stuffed in my mailbox every every month exactly as you like your precious comics to be uh, brought to you uh that and then uh and then i found sandman too young as every good <laughs> as every good comics comics uh reader should do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was a very very similar to me in that regard um i uh had read some um I read Spider-Man sort of leading up to the clone saga and I read uh, Superman through the death of Superman. Those were kind of my like childhood events uh, in both of those uh, worlds. And uh, in both cases, I I wasn't actually allowed to to read superhero comics or watch any um, animated show where people did violence to other people. My my mom was a huge hippie, Um, but I would like sneak these comics uh, here and there. And uh, pretty early it became apparent that, that, what was in my house was not that stuff, but rather was books of magic and Sandman, which my parents were reading. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was able to start picking up. Um, I think books of magic was probably the first thing I ever read for that was just like, Oh, I'm going to pick this up on my own. And, um, and then Sandman quickly followed. And, and uh, you know, as a little kid, like most of Sandman goes kind of over your head a lot, but uh, I found brief lives really accessible for whatever reason. I think because delirium was so fun. And so I just read brief lives like over and over again uh, until I picked up, uh, I I actually picked up superhero comics in my teens with um, the, uh, the Cassidy relaunch on, on, on X-Men at the same time that Whedon was doing astonishing uh, like around the time X-Men two came out. You really, I really owe X-Men two for getting me into um, X-Men and then from that into Batman. So if your parents were reading 
Sandman and books of magic and yeah. and superhero comics for you came later. Was that sort of your uh, your rebellion against your parents then? Ha! <laughs> kind of. Honestly, like it was a thing that I found that I could do alone. Um, I would I would like go. The, I, I was going to high school in um, like right outside Boston and right. uh, Harvard Square has a couple of really, really great comic book stores, Millionaire Picnic, um, New England Comics and Newberry Comics. And so I would go pick up a, a, a trade or two um, whenever I had the money to do so. I, I worked at a Starbucks and I would just, just basically convert my Starbucks paycheck into comic books. Uh, and I would go and I would sit at this little uh, bakery called High Rise and I would read uh, all just alone all day. Like no, no one I knew was into comics. I, I was the only person I knew who liked comics. Uh, I was sort of the, the vanguard in that res- in that respect uh, mm-hmm. for my friend group. And then uh, when I came to college, that was how Colin and I met was we um, both needed to get to the comic book store and neither of us in Los Angeles and neither of us had a car. So our mutual friend, David Server, uh, who uh, r- was Colin's roommate at the time and who wrote uh, my first book with me, uh, we got together and uh, drove to the comic book store every week and would pick up our books and argue about comics, uh, which, so we really came to this very, uh, very naturally, um, like most comic book fans, just by uh, being assholes to one another uh, and uh, <laughs> and arguing about uh, uh, whether or not we agreed with uh, who picked what side in Civil War. Like that was really <laughs> our like, our come up, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll I'll share this story. So Matt and I met on a uh, seventh grade gifted and talented trip to Boston. Uh, I might add, uh, you know, we've been the- gifted and talented. My goodness. Yeah, I guess that did, that sounds like a brag, even though it was anyway. Uh, <laughs> Nerd so, com, dude. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we we had never had classes together or anything, even though we went to the same school, and uh, ended up sharing a hotel room. And we're unpacking, and Matt pulls out. I want to say it was like the first half of like nightfall or something like that. Mm. And I unpack, I'm pulling out maximum carnage and we just kind of look at each other. And it was very much the stepbrothers. Did we just become best friends? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That was basically how we met. 29 (laughs) and a half years later. (laughs) For Jack and I, it's actually a little ironic because, um, you know, as he points out, we're arguing out each other like assholes. Uh, and that was <laughs> how we cut our teeth, really. Um, but I wouldn't say we were necessarily best friends uh, until uh, quite a bit later when we were in a writing group together. And it wasn't our mutual bonding over comic books or the fact that, you know, like I was like, I was, he was, a, you know, a, 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 a Tony and I was a Steve. Like, it wasn't that stuff that kind of really bonded it, though certainly mm-hmm. where respect started to get honed. But when we started reading each other's work, um, that was our, oh, are we best friends now? Because I'm reading his like black box theater stories that are just raw emotion to people in a room pouring their hearts out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm kind of writing like big bombastic explosion stuff. Uh, and in each other's work, we really saw what we were missing. Um, so that was our kind of collaboration. A little bit later, we'd start collaborating. We worked, went on a giant road trip where we wrote most of a script in a single day. It was amazing. And once we realized that kismet was like, it increased our power exponentially. Uh, that was our, oh, are we like, we'd already had, oh, are we best friends now? And mm-hmm. then we had, oh, are we writing partners for the rest of our lives now? Are we super <laughs> best friends? And then it was like, yes, we are now super best friends. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah. So in all the comics that we're going to talk about today, uh, you're, you're dealing with characters with uh, decades of, of pre-existing continuity. How much of that is on your mind when you're writing any of them? 
so we, and I, so obviously it depends from project to project. Um, sure. Certain yeah. projects are going to be steeped more in that and certain projects aren't. And in fact, right now is a really great example. Um, you know, just in looking at what, the work that we have on shelf right now, mm-hmm. it, there's, there's three, I think, really different ways that we handle it. So um, just to kind of run those down quickly. Sure. On uh, something like Captain America Sentinel Liberty, quite a lot. Um, we are old school Captain America fans. We love those books. As Colin pointed out, it was his first sort of touch point for superheroes. Steve was my first sort of favorite superhero. Um, like I, when I, I fell in love with, um, of all things, the, the ultimates version of him, which in retrospect is like not the point, but I, 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 uh, I, I really loved, uh, what they eventually took into, into Winter Soldier of like him jumping out of the, uh, plane without the parachute. Just like uh-huh. my teenage mind was like, what a cool idea. They should do that in a movie sometime, you know? So like, <laughs> regardless, we, we have a, a deep bench knowledge of, of Captain America at this point. We've read every Captain America book that's, that's been published. I mean, we're, we, we go through these publishing histories when we take over a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and our book is very much an evolution and, and design designed to be, responsive to what's come before we're, we're trying very much to um move steve into a new paradigm but do so in a way that really reckons with the, the the century of history that we have which is where things like the outer circle and the century game and these larger new ideas that we're bringing to the table come from so those mm-hmm. are steeped in, in in older continuity and you're going to see a lot of older continuity peppered in throughout that but we're building new stuff um on the other side of that oh go ahead well no just specifically i think it's really interesting there because we're, we're not only being referential and hat tipping to the past, but also really need to be aware of what has gone on in the past so we don't repeat the same beats. Yes. Right? The other thing about Steve is we have 40 years, 50 no. years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> com- comics timing is weird, but there's some... <laughs> really se- se- 75, 75 years, I think it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we need to be able to know what we can build that's new and not just pay lip service to that, but by actually ensuring that like, no, this is something new to the canon, not just technically, but emotionally and in relevance. Um, well, because if it was just technically, we wouldn't be doing that much new because a lot of what we're doing is an echo of uh, of uh, Secret Empire. But it, we we are aware of that. And part of the point of what we're doing is, is evolving on Secret Empire. Um, now, that's original Secret Empire, not recent Secret Empire. Um, again, a lot, a lot of that's on our mind, right? We're already into the weeds. On the mm-hmm. flip side of that, Batman Beyond Neo Year is defiantly anti-continuity not because we don't respect the television show not because we didn't love that show colin loved it growing up i found mm-hmm. it in college when i was allowed to watch violent cartoons uh and i um and we we've really uh really respect the hell out of batman beyond as a general premise and we respect the comics that have come before us but a big part of what we did the reason we came in on the character at all was because um dave wilgos in dc came to us and said do something new like fundamentally rethink this and build it back up so that we can do something new with batman beyond and so our you know from moment one you know we, we kill bruce on page two and then we're on to a new version of batman beyond not a new continuity quite to the degree that say like beyond the white knight did mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but you know designed in a continuity that if you know batman beyond you can get on board but we're not at no point are we sitting up there on batman beyond being like oh man we better find a way to get blight ink. in here yeah or ink or mm-hmm. um dana and like th- that's a and that's not because we don't like those characters but the kind of because we think what's what's can be said about those characters has been said and it's time to do some new stuff mm-hmm. um and then on the on the on the total third side of that we have aquaman flash void song which was like a little three issue completely out of continuity series that we did where 
that Wally doesn't have to conform to any version of Wally you've ever read. That's just our Wally. Our Wally is a little goofier. He's a little bit more like, to some degree, like the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not Wally, um, Barry. And see, that's the issue. I was that about Barry. To, I was yeah, he's, our, he's our Barry. I'm sorry. Series and I'm like, no, my brain is, I will, because what I was going where, where I was going with that is like our Barry has a little bit of Wally in him because we grew up on Wally, but like we're playing with Barry, so we're gonna try to do a little bit of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, similarly with with uh, Aquaman, yes, it's you know obviously um, uh, Arthur's not continuity Aquaman all the time right now. You've got a whole new version of Aquaman being played out in Andromeda um, mm-hmm. that that Ron and Christian are doing. Like it really felt like it was. Uh, that was a chance for us to kind of take the movie archetype, this Momoa kind of like bro king Aquaman and find a way to like lace him in with the current DC continuity. But in, so while there's a bunch of echoes of continuity and little cool things, and little Easter eggs, and there's, you know, by the end of that book, every character we like in the DC universe is there. It's not something where we had to ever sit there and be like, well, shoot, has this ever happened? Or, oh, is this character around in continuity? It's just like, no, like, are especially like are they popular in the film and TV shows? They're in this book because this book is designed for casual readers, designed for new readers. It's designed to bring people on. Um, so, th- so the answer is uh, always different depending and on the book. There's actually there's a, actually a fourth leg to that triangle. This is some kind of strange like four legged triangle. I don't know. What <laughs> um, and that is Star Trek, right? And that, unlike everything else, is is continuity. Continuity capital C. Right. Mm. Are we aware of continuity? God, yes. We have are keeping 21 seasons of television in our hats at all times. Right. Faithfully and religiously build a respectful and accurate and clockwork sequel to every one of our favorite shows that we've ever had. Right. Like that is we cannot we are creating new stuff. Absolutely. Because that's the watchword for us. We always have to be creating new things. Mm. But. I mean, yeah, we are every single page. You feel the weight of that responsibility of that legacy. Um, and and you got to respect it. Sorry, yeah, that, writing a lot that, of cat, been writing a lot of Star Trek this lately. And mm-hmm. and it's it's just really intense. Well, and that one has a, has a, a specific sort of, um, yeah, challenge insofar as it is canon. It's like, it's not, you know, when we're writing Cap, we don't need to worry, like, are we MCU canon? When we're writing Batman Beyond, it's like, oh, are we are we DCAU canon? That stuff doesn't really matter when it comes to the comics because the comics are their own canon and they're driving something forward. Mm-hmm. These Star Trek comics, for the first time in, you know, his, like in a long, long while of history, are considered canon. And so we are working with you know, several shows that are in production as well as a whole archive of shows that were produced over the last, you know, I mean, literally since the 60s to create something that that um, is unassailably in continuity. Um, and so, yeah, that that one that one's a that one's a hell of a, of a challenge. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're definitely going to get a little bit more into that later. But let's let's start with uh, our, our Sp- star spangled good boy, uh, Steve Rogers. <laughs> uh, how did uh, you two get the uh, get the cap gig? Oh, a good question. How do we get the cap gig? Um, so like all things, uh, all things in life, it starts with a conversation. Uh, Alana Smith, who is our current editor and who is just an absolute beast mm-hmm. uh, in the best possible way, uh, knew us from Joyride, um, our first book that we did, our second book we did over at Boom. Mm-hmm. Big fan. Uh, we sat down with her when she was still just a, a wee little assistant uh, outside of a New York Comic Con in, in a too loud at a you know a too loud table out in the sun mm-hmm. and just talked about ideas. Uh, we talked about all sorts of stuff, and while she really appreciated the ideas we brought to the table, none of it really landed. 
Uh, and that's okay. Among those conversations was some cap, uh, was some Kang, was a few other things, but- you No, know, let, let's just be clear. There was no cap or Kang at that conversation. That conversation, no, not at all. And she wasn't an assistant, she was an associate. We were in the middle of that whole conversation was just a general. What do you like? That was all we did. We just talked about what we liked. And she looked at us and said, you seem like great Steve boys. And we were like, what? Like the very first time she met us. And we were like, that's hilarious. We will never get the chance to write Captain America. And went away from there without any jobs. Sorry, not to cut you off, but just to make sure we're actually like, sorry. (laughs) Being factual. (laughs) You just did something my dad always irritated the shit out of my dad when my dad then looks at me and says it the truth doesn't matter it's about telling a good story so the ghost of my father just wagged his finger at you yeah sorry yeah but sorry. The, but this but it, but it is a good story she called it she called it years out and then we couldn't get a story through her for about two years every story we pitched that's where what colin was just saying comes in we pitched stories for the next two years and found a blank wall because everything we were pitching was uh, it was all in the margins. We pitched a war machine story. We pitched a Nova story. We pitched a winter soldier story. And for every character that we pitched, she came back and said, ah, that character's already in use. I don't really know if that's going to move. I don't think anybody's buying that character. And so there wasn't really anything for us to do. And as the pandemic hit, we took a really wild swing on Kang the Conqueror, a character who we had an inkling was going to be part of the movie verse. And we're like, all right, maybe we can make this happen. And we got Kang the Conqueror, our five issue miniseries through that. That was our first intro at Marvel, which overperformed for them. I think everybody was happy with that book. And we were really happy to work with Alana. Which leads to Alana coming back to us with the most improbable of emails, uh, which is, hey guys, do you want to maybe try to pitch on Captain America? Yep. And it was pretty crazy. Um, we pulled out the, you know, we, we had had a pitch uh, that we had been working on for a while. Uh, obviously it would, hadn't been touched for quite a while, um, but we got the opportunity to put together, uh, show it to her, pitch it up. And she liked it, had notes obviously, but then said, you know what guys, like you're not going to get this job. That was the the mm. key here was you're not, you're just not going to get this job. She, um, she said but, that before we pitched. Yeah. She was like, you're not going to get this job. But, um, you know, we'd really love for like Tom to see your work. You know, maybe it'll get up to CB. Like what we're trying to do right now is get you guys fans. So that mm. next time when there is a character you might be able to get, I don't know, like fucking chameleon or some stupid shit. We'd be like, great. <laughs> these guys are the right choice for this. So every time we submit, we take some notes and gets notes and around we go through three layers of that. Um, before we get a call that's like, hey guys, um, like, be ready. And we're like, what the fuck does be ready mean? And then we get another call later on, or maybe it was an email um, that effectively says, hey, guess what? You're, you are now the captains of the Star Spangled Avenger. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> so it was wild going from a job that we absolutely should. I mean, we should get it because we did get it and we're doing an amazing job, but I think we can all agree that if we do say so ourselves, yeah, I'm just saying it's quite the uh, the confidence. (laughs) Yeah. You gotta, you gotta believe in yourself. Um, Yeah. 
But I think that was just the crazy thing. Like, I think we can all agree that, you know, going from a five issue miniseries to writing Captain America is quite the jump. Yeah, it was it was it was a big uh, it was a big move for them um, and a big vote of confidence in us, which we have endeavored very hard to not make them regret. Um, and, and fortunately, I think the, the beautiful thing about it and what, what Alana continues to remind us is like the reason that we're doing this is because they love what we brought and because they knew that that's what was you know needed for Steve and, and where they wanted to take that character. And so we approach Captain America with an enormous amount of um, sort of awareness uh, of the legacy that we're stepping into. There aren't a lot of short runs on this character. And generally these char- this character has has only been really been written by a, a handful of of uh, some of the best comics writers uh, that have ever existed. So for us to come in and and try to tell our story has been a real um, a really daunting and 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 but but truthfully like lovely challenge because it does force us, as Colin put it, to have confidence in the work um, and make sure that we're we're bringing a real sense that like we belong here. And we have a story to tell. Now, uh, you know, I was curious, uh, Colin. You mentioned that you, you know, started out reading Cap. Uh, what, like, around what era was that? Oh, let's see here. It was uh, like late nineties. Um, okay. So I believe it was. What is it? It's Grunwald. Yeah, it would have been the great. I, I, I'm almost positive your run is the Grunwald run leading into the Wade run. It's the okay. whole it's it's the whole section where he was getting depowered and he had the suit. Yeah, yep. yeah. Captain America Iron Suit was just the coolest thing you could possibly imagine. Because I mean, what's what what better flavor than Cap than Steve Rogers plus Iron Man? I mean, come on, it's as cool <laughs> as it gets, baby. Um, but yeah, it was definitely my run. Um, you know, big big muscles, big lasers, um, but also like a lot of tragedy. And I think that's kind of one of the key things about cap about steve is that that sense of a man out of time and Mm -hmm. all the things that he sacrificed and all the things that he's had to let go of um the idea that his even then his super soldier serum was fading was failing and the thing that had made him so powerful literally draining from his body literally killing him Mm -hmm. and still said i will not fall i will keep fighting Uh, even if i have to wear this hilarious blue armor suit which looked awesome though in hindsight hey i was i was 17 um but yeah it just really was a formative experience um it's not captain america the unstoppable wall it's captain america the man who will never fail or the man who will never allow himself to fail let's also be fair cap in armor makes more sense than daredevil the acrobat in armor at the same time so <laughs> yes it was it was kind of uh in vogue to put everybody in armor it was the 90s um ironically i'm a huge fan of knights dragons and knights are my entire goddamn thing so you'd think putting captain america in armor i'd be like woo woo hell yeah but <laughs> there was no dragon i think that was the problem and if you would have we will uh, attempt to correct that by the t- time we are done with captain i'm gonna hold you to that i I hear you brent (laughs) you did have a laser shield though that's that that's like a dragon we have i cannot say anything about laser shield but we all agree laser shield totally rad (laughs) why why can't you say anything about laser shield are there laser shield plans i don't know about (laughs) (laughs) no i just keep Breaking news, to... everyone. Breaking news, colon, laser shield. I'm just saying, <laughs> I have tricked you guys to let me put the laser shield back into the book. 
it'll seem like we planned it even from now. Oh, See, nice. All right. Questioning the audience into thinking that we're <laughs> and me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna not a not a rant, but I'm I'm gonna go off just a little bit here. So there are not in a negative way. There, there are so many Captains America now, right? Like Sam is wearing the colors. Bucky's done his term. John Walker's done his term. You know, we got all these other ones that were introduced in the United States of Captain America that, you know, we want to stick around. And, and all these characters are meant to speak to, to certain subsets of the population, different aspects of the American dream. You know, but that also speaks to the fact that the dream means different things to different people. And so Steve Rogers, you know, the guy in the movie is the guy in all the t-shirts and the lunch boxes and that puzzle I just put together that's hanging in my basement, you know, likely isn't everyone's personification of the dream. Like he was once presented as so, you know, where, where does that fall on the spectrum between a challenger looking to take on and a, a loaded bear to poke, you know, like uh, personally, I, 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 go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I mean, look, th this is the whole, this is the whole ball game. Um, mm -hmm. it, like stepping in on on Steve in the first place um, is a loaded deal. Uh, it just is naturally because Iron Man doesn't need to stand like Iron Man can stand for commercialism and, uh, and consumerism and like capitalism and all these things, but it doesn't mm -hmm. need to. Uh, he's not Captain Capitalism. He's he's Iron Man. <laughs> Um, like the, these, you know, the X-Men can stand in for a lot of different versions of persecution, but they can also just be Krakoa, uh, you know, like they can be these like crazy big, like popular, uh, uh, uh and populist, um, you know, rebel stories. Captain America is always going to have America in his name. And as a result is going to reflect what is going on in America. Um, when we did our, we, we signed a, for Captain America zero. Mm -hmm. which is a team up of, of Steve and, and Sam that launched both of our books, uh, both our book and, and some uh, symbol of truth, Toshi on your book. And um, we did a signing with Mark Wade. Uh, Mark was signing uh, world's finest number two, I believe. And we were signing uh, cap zero. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're starstruck. Mark's a huge influence on us. Um, and, uh, and just a lovely man. But uh, he looked at me in point blank. He was like, I don't know how you write captain America now. And I, and I, and I said, yeah, man, I know it's a, it's a real, it's a real trick. Um, and he was like, I don't know if somebody asked me to do it now, I don't know how I'd approach it uh, because it's just so loaded. And ultimately what Colin and I discovered when we got in on this and started talking about this was that the way that we could relieve that sense of the loaded nature of the character was twofold on the one do what we always do, which is don't take this story from a meaning perspective, take the story from a story, from a character perspective, uh, None of our stories are about an idea. All of our stories are about a character, fundamentally. Um, that's just how we start. It's how we align. It's how we get on the same page so that we can finish each other's sentences, right? So that, because we know what this character is going through and then we can build the story and the meaning of the idea out from that. But we'll start from character and then build to meaning. Or sometimes we'll, we'll start from meaning and then we can't write the book until we've built the character side of that that reflects the meaning. Um, with Captain America, we knew we had a story to tell about Steve, uh, and we knew that we knew that at, at the core of it, it had to be a story about looking at what the symbol means, what the legacy means, and how to drive it forward into uh, into a future of America. Not a reflection of the problems with America today, but a inspiring, optimistic, and hopefully hopeful narrative to take uh, America forward from where it is right now. Um, this was a 
book be, that was being developed at the exact same time as Joe Biden was being elected. And so a big part of the, the sort of natural conversation in the country was about how do we move forward? What does it look like to move forward without reckoning with our past? And, and like, what are these, what are the, 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 the parts of that that are going to rub up against each other? That's really where Sentinel Liberty started was how do we take a real good close look at what Steve has represented in the past and what he's going to represent moving forward. Um, so that was the first part of it about like getting out of it, sort of understanding that it was going to be loaded. We were going to talk about that, but we're going to find a way to talk about it with Steve, not with the symbol. That was first. The second way we got around, oh God, it's it's loaded, is new, big, fun pulp ideas. That this book was not going to be what Captain America books have been for quite some time now, because we couldn't do, We're I'm not going to out uh, write Ta-Nehisi Coates when it comes to reflecting the problems with the American dream, truthfully. Mm-hmm. That would be hubris on our part. He has he has made he has he has made a a like he he's one of the the top scholars on this particular subject in the world. For us to come in and try to do another like cap road trips across the country and encounters injustice story would be foolish. So for us, instead, what we had to do was look back to runs that we love, runs like Winter Soldier, runs like Secret Empire, runs like. Um, to some degree, the remainder run and look at what it means to take these big pulpy science fiction ideas that exist uh, as, as a sort of like, like tonal layer for Captain America and make them reminiscent of these problems that we're going through in the world. So that's where the outer circle came from. That's where the, the, the premise behind a new conspiracy that managed to look at the world as it stands right now and say, okay, what are our problems? What are the things that we're dealing with? And then how do we personify those in characters? How do we take our problems with capitalism and explain them in a character? How do we take our problems with fascism and explain them in a character? How do we take our problems with industrialism and embrace them into a character, right? And along that way, that built out the outer circle and built out a framework by which we could use Cap to talk about these things without having to pull it so far out of the pulp adventure that the book became a lecture that we were not in any way qualified to give. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, Now, Cap these days is also a little bit of a Wolverine in that he's appearing in, in multiple books at yeah. once, you know, how much, I mean, you, you, you two have your own story to tell, obviously, you know, but how much are you keeping tabs on say Jason Aaron's Avengers or what Kieran's doing with cabin judgment day, just to, to see if there's anything that, you know, you need to worry about or, or work with. We are uh, primarily we were interfacing very closely with Tochi. Um, mm-hmm. We are, but primarily we have our noses down. Um, we trust Alana mm-hmm. to let us know if there's anything that we need to worry about. Um, we are entirely focused on telling this story is the best story possible. And yes, as younger creators, personally, I always thought, my God, when you get to Marvel, there's so many, your characters all over the place. There's so many interweaving pieces. How as a writer, can you keep all that in your head? And the answer is you don't, you don't know. Your editors need to. And the mm-hmm. editors we've worked with at Marvel are so goddamn good that I absolutely try. Can You can take that little part of your brain that worries about how your character fits into the wider Marvel universe and just be like, that's going to be your problem. That's, a, that's an Alana thing. And absolutely <laughs> trust her to let us know that like, yeah, guys, this is crossing a line. This is doing a this, that, or the other. Um, but it's really good to have a a person on your team who has that 10,000 foot view so mm-hmm. that we can stay in the trenches of the page. 
So there's actually there's also a really interesting story um, to this regard, uh, and I'll, I'll have to be kind of vague about uh, the specifics because the issue hasn't solicited yet. Mm-hmm. But um, there is a crossover happening in Captain America Eight uh, with another book that's sort of outside the Avengers office. Okay. Uh, we knew that we were going to be using this character, and we knew that we wanted to to find a way to sort of build it into continuity. And uh, part of what that meant was us understanding where that character is and how they're how they're operating and what's going on in their book. Fortunately, it's from a line that we're reading, so we did know a little bit about it, but we aren't totally up to speed. We were maybe a year behind on the line, so we didn't know everything that was going on. Sorry, my cat has decided that she's now part of the interview. Um, <laughs> the uh, the thing about uh, the thing about this is that if we were to just take the the um, and, you know, I'm because I'm reading I'm reading Jason's Avengers and I'm reading Kieran's work across the board because I'm the biggest Kieran Gillen fanboy there is. I have been since phonogram. Like right. I, I was the kid like lining up to like get Kieran's autograph. I mean, he he knows. I mean, I mean, old school in bear. The, when, when we finally met as creators, I was wearing a Wiktiv shirt. Like it's gross. <laughs> um, I like it's it's I, I have had a really hard time gaining any measure of respect from Kieran um, he, and he has been very lovely at eventually providing that respect but the 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 point here being earned his respect on the dance floor trust me. yes there you go um but the point here being I'm kind of the continuity hound of the two of us Colin doesn't need to read all the books because I, I I don't really outsource that part of my brain to Alana as much I I tend to be pretty deep in the continuity because I can't work without it that said this was a place where we didn't know neither of us had read the book Neither of us were sure what was going on. And we were like, how, how are we going to bring this character in? What do we do? We asked their offices. We worked with their editorial team. We all talked together. We met new editors that way. We all talked about how we were going to build a thing together. That all came together into, you know, the crossover as it stands in eight. And we made a funny joke in eight that we thought was like a funny original joke. Book goes to art. They're building the art. They're doing the thing. And I'm like, I've got some time. I go on vacation for a couple of weeks. I should probably read the last year of this run. And so I go and I read the last year of this run finally. And I get to the last time that Steve and this character interacted and straight up, they make the same joke we made, except it's like a, it's it's like a prequel joke. It's a joke that makes our joke better. And I didn't know about the joke. I just, we just wrote the line and thought like, oh, this would be a funny joke. And then it turns out whoever wrote this issue, all, which I can't say, I, I know who they are, but I can't say because it'll spoil it. Right. They knew the joke too. And so we were like, Shh. like I, I, I read that and I was like, well, that's that's the whole thing. Because like, even if you don't know the continuity, you're working with all these incredible writers. Most of them are going to have, probably they're going to be on the same wavelength as you to some degree in terms of what's going to be funny and what's going to draw conflict between these characters. So um, it's, a, it's interesting existing in this continuity, you know, because you have to, Colin is very right. You have to lead your own ship. You have to worry about yourself, not the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get to pull great inspiration from all the amazing creators who are working around you, who, uh, you know, you know, often oftentimes have been doing this longer than us, have been doing this with with great success, or um, who just inspire us to do new things. I mean, we, we wouldn't be half the writers we were if it weren't for people like Jonathan Hickman and, and Kieran Gillen and, um, uh, you know, uh, Bendis and, uh, you know, the, the people who inspired us to create the way that we do. The, the thing that is very cool and, you know, folks listening to this can just, I want you to think about this as, you know, imagine how we used to be as just fans. Uh, we just got invited to our first Marvel mini summit. 
which like if you can imagine like travel back in time and tell 14 year old us that's like oh yeah one day you're gonna go be in a room with uh cb sabolsky and tom brevoort and every other luminary of the marvel universe and they're gonna sit there and you're gonna be at the table uh trust is mind-blowing yeah but obviously that will lead to a little bit more uh a little bit more connectivity with the rest of the rest that rest of the universe Now, uh, you, you did mention that, you know, you're, you're kind of keeping uh, abreast of, of what Toshi's got going on in, in the Sam Wilson book. You know, you guys are working uh, ostensibly, you know, toward a, a kind of crossover story, Cold War, yes. uh, next year. And, you know, of course, <laughs> where, where I'm at and what I'm reading and where you guys are and what you're writing are, are, are two different things, obviously. But uh, I, I guess how how is the level of coordination going with regard to oh. you know that and those two books? I mean, it's it's a really beautiful thing. Um, you know, in large part because the books are not deeply tied; like they are a line, but they are not a line in the way that what we do gets in the way of what Tochi does, or what Tochi does gets in the way of what we do. We at the very beginning of this thing set two different settings. Right? Steve was going to be concerned with the Outer Circle and Lower Manhattan. That was it. Sam got the entire Marvel Universe. He just got to go, like, let's get Sam Wilson over there with Doctor Doom and Deadpool. Let's go get him out into the world as Captain America. Let's, you know, Steve doesn't have anything to prove in that regard. It's time for Steve to just look inward and deal with his own stuff. And the more that we were able to create these two different worlds for our books to play in, the less we needed to be sitting over Tochi's shoulder or Tochi needed to be over our shoulder to really understand what it was we're doing. And instead we just get to come together, high five each other, be like, man, I love what you did in that book. Yeah, I love what you did in that book. How are we gonna turn that into a thing at the end of this for our book? Oh, we know how to figure that out. Cause we've had these sort of these end posts. We've known like, and again, it's not the end of either book but we've known where these first things were gonna intersect. We knew what kind of characters they were gonna bring in. We knew the basic themes that we're gonna be dealing with. And we knew the kind like, we know what year two of these books is. So we know how that pivot point needs to function. Then it's just a matter of getting into a room and throwing crazy ideas against the wall and letting each other play in that world. Um, the the Cold War crossover is going to take the form mostly of individual issues of these books. So it's it creates a really great opportunity for us to do something that still feels like if you're reading Sentinel of Liberty, this is a chance to kind of get in on Symbol of Truth and see what they're doing. If you're reading Symbol of Truth and you want to kind of check out what's, what Sentinel's doing, this will be a great way to do that. If you're reading both books, you'll start to see how all of them are tied together. But um, but right now, they don't need to be must-read books for one another, which we felt was really important. Yeah. But ideally, everyone is must-reading, right? For every sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. Everybody needs to be picking up both books. We'd really love that. Uh, another person we should talk about here in the mix, uh, you're working with Carmen Carnero uh, on art. Yeah, uh, you know, definitely one of Just Marvel's the best, stronger artists for the past few years. I mean, honestly, both cat books. I mean, R.B. Silva on Symbol yeah. of Truth. I mean, you know, that's 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 Marvel putting effort into the art side as well, mm. which is fantastic. So, yeah, uh, I, I guess how is, how are you guys kind of how is the bonding going with with your artist with Carmen? <laughs> It's divine. It's wonderful. I, I, it, it, it couldn't be better. Um, Car- Carmen speaks the exact same storytelling language we do and has the exact same priorities. And uh, I mean, it's it's a match made in heaven. We actually, um, we had the opportunity to work with Carmen um, 
a couple years back, uh, back when she was just kind of getting started in Big Two uh, with a book called Gotham City Garage. Uh, mm. She came in, we had a rotating cast of artists. Uh, it was a digital first series. She came in and did uh, an issue with us and we loved it so much. We instantly emailed our editor being like, um, can we stop rotating artists? Can it just be Carmen all the time? Uh, and we were just about to get that thumbs up when Carmen hurt herself. Uh, I believe it was a spinal injury uh, and she had to kind of step away. Uh, so then when it circled back, hey, do you guys want to work with Carmen Carnero? It's like, oh my God, yes, yes. It's just like a dream deferred, right? It just had to take right. us a few more years, but we got our wish. And we start talking with her and she's excited. And we say, hey, what do you really want to draw about this? And she was like, well, I just really want to make sure that we're telling stories about Steve. Like not just Captain America, though when Captain America, you know, I want to see him on a motorcycle. And we're like, we can do that. Check out issue two. Um, <laughs> but she's also like, I want to see him around town. I want to see him as a person. And we were like, Carmen, that's the whole damn pitch, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we are so in alignment. Um, we're reaching that point. Uh, the only other person I'd say we were as comfortable with uh, was our OG collaborator, Marcus Toe. Um, mm. Marcus, we could just say something and he'd, he'd know exactly what we meant. Um, I think Carmen is getting to that point where she's effectively becoming a member of the hive mind. Um, and you'd love to see it. It's a really remarkable experience. Yeah. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And I also will say, I, I do love the design of uh, redacted, the uh, <laughs> kind of antagonist, the past couple issues. So, yeah. Well, and, and, and that's, so that's another thing that I really love about cap in general is that because we're introducing new characters, it's given Carmen who has a really excellent design sense a time a chance to just design a whole new swath of captain america rogues um the the redesigns that are coming in out of this book and the new designs that are coming in out of this book and the things that you'll see coming down the line in this book um carmen's getting to put her stamp on a, a ton of characters um and this is really giving her the chance to like make a uh an oeuvre um out of the the captain america universe uh, it's, it's been lovely and obviously like getting to do that in conjunction with rb on the on the sam side is just you know, you, you couldn't ask for two better artists to be essaying out this world. Absolutely. And we're just we're just so we're just gonna the first time we see someone cosplaying as one of the outer circle, we're just gonna die. Yeah, I I'm really like <laughs> if if five people ever get together and cosplay the entire outer circle, uh I that'll be the end of our career. We'll be good. We will <laughs> die on the spot. For um, that cosplayers out there, we will and we will give you signed cop copies of Captain <laughs> issue one if you friends together to cosplay the outer circle the the, the one thing I'll, I'll i'll say about that uh just because we were talking about artists and you know i do want to also just one up him um we haven't we're inviting a new artist into the captain america family uh not to replace carmen because carmen is going to be this the artist on this book for every issue of sentinel we are never letting her like she doesn't want to leave we don't want her to leave i know it's customary for Marvel like swap out artists after a year or whatever. We're just like, none of us are gonna down with that. Like Carmen is the <laughs> artist of Sentinel, the end. But uh, we're gonna be doing a one shot. Captain America and the Winter Soldier, uh, number one, it's coming out in December. It is a, or November, I think it's December, but it might be November. Um, it is the, it's gonna come out in conjunction with Captain America issue six, I believe, but might maybe, maybe with seven, depending on where it lands. Mm -hmm. uh, that is going to be a deep dive into the history of the Outer Circle, into the fundamental um, sort of basics behind all these characters. It's a chance to really dig in on, on some of the new stuff that we've built out and see how it all came about. Um, because Carmen is on the core book, we needed to bring somebody in to do that. And we ended up being partnered with Kev Walker, who we have been fans of for 
ever. We're both Magic the Gathering players, so working with Kev is actually just kind of a huge geek out for us. It's like, oh my god, he drew our favorite cards. But um, but Kev is also just an incredible sequential artist uh, and has really mastered a sort of Mignola-esque style uh, over the last like 20 years that he's just, I mean, executing at the highest level. So uh, getting to have Kev come in and Kev who is historically minded and who can look at a page set in 1922 and be like, that's not uh, actually, that wouldn't be there. This is the model of car is like incredible. Cause he's just got such a mind for history and for detail. And since the outer circle is all about that kind of thing, uh, having Kev on has been a, uh, a true delight. We're really excited to show everybody um, some of this world through not Carmen's lens, um, but obviously with Carmen's designs. So we're really trying to like cement this stuff around, which has been really fun. So if you're going to be, a, if you're, if you're picking up, you're picking up Sentinel of Liberty, be sure to let your LCS know that you also <laughs> want Captain America and the Winter Soldier annual one shot number one. Gonna I, like marketing language off of that. It is actually required reading. Yeah. Like, basically. like, like fundamentally required reading. If you keep reading Sentinel and you haven't, been, you haven't read this annual, there will be some stuff that you're, you're going to miss. You, you're, you're going to want to read this issue. And without spoilers, when Captain America issue six ends, you're going to have some, <laughs> you're going to have some questions and you're going to want to know where it's going. This one shot is your answer. So you're really, make sure you pick that issue up. It's going to run. Shot chaser, as I yeah. said. Yes, shot chaser. Right on. We're pretty deep in. We haven't gotten anything else. So <laughs> I, I'm now hijacking this because we now need to talk about the stuff I want to talk about. <laughs> um. Well, luckily, hey. if we can't hit all the topics today, uh, we're chatty boys. So you're more yeah, we'll come back to have us. <laughs> okay, because because I'm the guy who also hosts the Batman podcast. So it's time to move on. To oh, Batman hey, Beyond. love it. Release the night. Uh, so I want to hit this and then I'm also a Star Trek guy. So I got to hit some of that. But we'll we get some beyond first. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I really dug about the Neo year, which just wrapped up earlier this month, uh, was the narrative conceit of the series that this is Terry narrating and writing a journal to the recently departed Bruce Wayne, who you killed off right quick in the urban legends short that led into the series. Get out of here, Bruce. <laughs> Where, how early did that as the narrative device for the series come in? Oh, I think right away. Um, part of the way that we knew so we actually try not to use voiceover captioning whenever possible it's an easy crutch in comics and you i hate that word um it's an easy device to use and and we try not to use it that said there's some books that re it really that ask for it void song for instance has two characters who are dealing with internal monologue. We thought it was really fun if we could slowly get their internal monologues to the point where they were arguing with each other and then could sync them at the end, right? There's certain ways where you're like, oh, that could be like a cool use of the of the thing. With Steve, we try to really not lean on it whenever we can not have voiceover we do, but every once in a while you'll want a little Steve voiceover. With Batman, we knew that we were trying to frame Terry inside of the Batman legacy and have him be questioning what that meant. Uh, what it meant to operate as Batman, what it meant to operate in the way that Bruce told him to, and what it meant to operate in his own way. So um, right from the get-go, that kind of demands looking at Batman Year One. Yep, there we go. Which, which is what we did. And we said, you know, our, 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 our thesis statement on Neo Year, before it was called Neo Year, was what does Batman Beyond Year One look like? 
Like, what is Batman Beyond? Not year one, like Terry Terry's first year as Batman. We saw that on the show. But what does Terry's first year without Bruce look like? What does it look like when he's stumbling and no one gets to pick him up? What happens when he makes the same mistakes Bruce made or makes different mistakes because he's a different man? How does that all come through? And once we realize that, we're like, well, okay, that means that you get to use the black case book. You get to use that idea of that journal that he's that he's writing to himself that lets him feel like his mission is persistent. And so we um, not only did that help us um, do our fun little allusions to, to Batman or one um, that we couldn't avoid doing just by, by nature of this being part of a larger legacy. And, and it would feel almost disingenuous not to, but it also allowed us to, at the end of the series, spoiler alert, um, access a, a way to say, okay, now that we've shown you this device, now we're going to show you how Terry's going to evolve this and move into his life in a different way than Bruce did. Yeah. So it felt like it was like thematically important that we tell the story that way on top of just being a great way to tell a Batman story. Well, and it just uh, mechanically, it made total sense because obviously Terry is dealing with a, a living AI, a sentient AI that has taken over the entire city. So if he keeps any kind of ditch, because we we're you know, we're back and forth with the letterer. We're like, oh, should this be a cool digital caption? And then we realize like, absolutely not. If it's digital, then it's accessible. The only way to keep information safe from a computer like this is by uh, something called air gapping means literally no connection to uh, an outside system. Uh, we Our first book we did with Boom was actually called Hacktivist, and we learned a lot about cybersecurity. So this was a chance to kind of dust off some of that knowledge and be like, yeah, writing it in a notebook is literally the only way he can keep his thoughts safe. Recently went back and watched some Batman Beyond, and it's funny to watch how dated the future tech is. <laughs> that there's still discs and That's things. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. How did you approach tech in a future when tech is moving so fast now? Lumos. <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally a one word answer. That's the, <laughs> the entire character of Donovan Lumos is our answer to exactly that issue. Because we were like, look, we know that the Batman universe is kind of like retro futuristic here. So let's give ourselves a character who is pushing the technology forward and creates a new technology vanguard for all of our characters, right? So like once Lumos comes in and he comes in real early in issue one and he's saying, I've made holographic technology. I've taken over Wayne, Wayne Tech and I'm releasing this holographic technology into the world right now. Hard light, it's everywhere. Let's go. The minute that we were doing that, then it became a thing where it's like, okay, well then that's the technology we're focused on. I don't, I'm not worried about whether or not somebody has a CD-ROM. I'm worried about where does the holographic technology go? Where are the nanites? How does this stuff function? And how does it all lace into the, into the story? So we tried to kind of take technology vanguards and push them forward. I guess it's not just Lumos, it's also just Stalt. If you want to talk to that, Colin, because like that, that was a, a, a pretty big part of that as well. Yeah, well, so with the secret of Batman Beyond, um, secret air quotes, like I'm a fucking guru. Um, one of the things about Batman Beyond is that it looks at science, uh, the, the terror of science, the terror of technology is really the core of Batman Beyond's rogue, of Terry's rogues gallery. In the same way that Bruce's rogues gallery is built up of psychosis. Um, Terry's rogues gallery is technology run amok and technology being abused. Um, so being able to explore that, yeah, is absolutely really important for us to kind of push that forward and look at where those abuses come. Because while we are not telling this, we are we are not telling the story in 1990. You know, we're telling it in 2022. So technology has evolved. I fucking love laser discs. You know it, baby. Let's <laughs> plug those analogs in and out. I'm into it. But that couldn't be the concern that we were playing with. 
Um, so we really needed to look at contemporary issues um, such as, you know, digital identity and um, catfishing to a big degree and what it's like to kind of start to transcend and your human frail form, right? Like these are the kind of questions that we wanted to approach with the eye of Batman Beyond, um, not whether or not cars should or shouldn't fly. Also, just to throw just to throw it out there, that's a um, I think Colin hits another really core point of of our of what attracted us to this book and like why we wanted to do it in the first place, which is that the um, the way that uh, our book was designed was to be you know single issue, you know narrative little pods that were going to get you through these various ideas of Batman. Batman as the face of Gotham, Batman as the knight of Gotham, Batman as the detective of Gotham, Batman as the shadow of Gotham. Like all of these various ideas of like what Batman could be in Gotham because Terry was kind of trying them out over the course of it until he decided what his Batman looked like. Um, as we were going through that framework, we were introducing new villains. Oh, there's the point. And what, <laughs> what we found was really interesting was Batman's uh, Batman Beyond's rogues gallery doesn't really reflect Terry's problem. Hmm. Terry isn't a character who represents technology run amok in any respect. So it's odd that all of his villains are that. All his villains are effectively Spider-Man villains because Batman Beyond was effectively developed as Spider-Man, but Batman. Because all of his villains are effectively Spider-Man villains, how you how we looked at taking new villains into this meant we had to try to create a new rubric by which to understand his villains without leaving behind the fact that it's a science fiction book and, and the character should be technological and all this kind of interest. So what we did instead was we tried to look at our three new villains we were developing, that being the, um, the living Gotham, Donovan Lumos, and Gestalt. And that all three of these characters would be representative, not just of technology run amok, but of legacy mm. misused. And how one creates legacy and how one sustains legacy and how one pushes legacy forward and how one operates with a burden of legacy. Because that's what Terry's actually going through in our book. Our book is about can Terry keep being Batman with Bruce no longer in his ear. So he is just struggling with legacy, trying to understand who he is in the context of this Batman legacy. And so all the villains got to represent that, even though they weren't by their very necessity like technology villains or, or, or because they were by their very necessity technology villains, they didn't have to be like Spider-Man villains. They got to be Terry McGinnis, Batman Beyond villains. And I think like, that's, to me, that was the that was the 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 hardest bit to crack um, in a lot of ways, because we really had to go in and think like, how do we redevelop this character? So from the, the macro to the the micro in a, a really detail thing, there's a, just a, moment in issue four when terry is fighting the gotham's knight where you see a cult of cat splicers who are sort of worshiping catwoman was that something you guys put in the script or is that max dunbar just like hey this is a neat oh that was okay so that was you guys well we we it's, a, one, it's, it's, a, it's a collab <laughs> yeah in one i think in for issue one or some such we just mentioned like uh, in the alley there are some dregs and I don't know cat boys and we spell it B-O-I because we're cute and it's just like a little tip of the hat to Max what are you going to do and then we get the pages back and we're like uh oh like he draws a, draws a few of them and clearly they're like a little pack and we're like well shit <laughs> characters now yeah what? Colin and I really love cats we're both cat dudes and like if you look at our work you'll just find cats <laughs> everywhere we just 
we put them everywhere. We're clearly, we clearly both have that parasite in our brain and it's just like making us write about cats. But hey, at this point, like too late, we're doing it. Um, but so yeah, we just, once once we saw that and we, we started talking to Max and Max started putting cat boys everywhere. He just like loved them. And he was like, okay, cat boys all over the book. Uh, and so by the time we got to four, we were like, great. That that beat we very specifically scripted. Like, oh, we're gonna punch him through, and there's gonna be the Selena poster, and like, we're we're really gonna like make a point out of, you know, this is what Selena Kyle left behind. Like, her legacy is this wider group of uh, sort of play by their own rules, steal what they can, level anarchist collective. Yeah, like like cat punks. Almost all of almost all of them. Just so you know, almost all. All of them are either named Kyle or Selena, gender neutral, but they are all named Kyle or Selena. It's very yeah. confusing, but identity doesn't really matter as much when you're in the cat pack. Uh, and uh, and we love them dearly. Yep. Uh, we we think they're super dope. And uh, theoretically, uh, you will probably see more of them to some degree or another. Because 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 they're one of those things that we put in the book, but we didn't really essay very well, and we were like, "All right, maybe we'll have time for them later." And I think maybe now we do. I I, I figured it was too early because we haven't, you know, ah. Batman Beyond will return in twenty twenty three. I I was going to ask, would you be happy to be the guys to write that when it comes back? We've we've all but confirmed that we are the guys who are coming back. Okay. Just... The, the, the book the book is coming back because people supported Neo Year. If we walked away right now, that would be real. That would be that would be a bummer. <laughs> we're gonna we we're we're gonna we're gonna stick around. So moving into some some quick Star Trek. Uh so from other interviews you've done, uh you've said that this is in that narrow window in between the end of Voyager and Nemesis. Yep. Were you approached with that as okay you guys have a story and we want it to be said here or were you like you know there's this gap and we want to fill it so yeah uh, that second one sounds pretty good um the mandate <laughs> on this book and we got approached after doing year one or year five which obviously just an amazing experience we had a great time the book stands for itself i you know getting to do that if that is all the star trek we ever had the opportunity to do we would have died happy men um but then uh, we get a call from Heather Antos, who's the new editor on Trek, who we've been working with over in at, uh, at Valiant. Uh, and we we did the Harbinger with with her. Yep, and uh, she called us with a very interesting proposition. What does a book just called Star Trek look like? No colon, no subtitle, just Star Trek. What's that? And that was the prompt we started noodling on. And I think it was Colin who found the year gap um but one of us found the gap and we were just looking at the timeline and being like where do you tell a story basically our, our rubric was where do you tell a story where you can simultaneously bring back cisco and data's still alive because we knew we wanted those two characters we were really insistent because when you think about introducing new people to star trek i'm like i want, I want them to meet my favorite captain which is cisco and i want them to meet i think the most prototypical non-TOS character in Star Trek, and that's Data. I think Data is just like, if you if you had one character to like be Star Trek that isn't Spock or Kirk, I feel like it's Data. So we were like, we know we want Cisco and we know we want Data, so is there a year that they're still alive? <laughs> like, where does that sit? And what we realized was um, that uh, uh, there's about a year and a half to two year, depending on how you count Stardates, canon 
area between the end of Voyager and the beginning of Star Trek Nemesis, which is where, spoiler alert, Data dies. So how do we how do we get a story that takes place in that moment, right? Uh, and that and that's what we brought back to them. We said, look, there's this little gap. As long as we put the toys back in the toy box where you need them for the TV shows, can we build canon here? And Star Trek uh, was very open to it. You know, it's it's not a it's not a year they can film anymore. The actors are all older than they are there, so it's a space that the television show can't operate inside of. Um, and so, no, that was our that was our soul. We came to them with that, and um, and thought it would be too crazy a swing. We're like, we want the entire Star Trek universe. It just exists in these two years. Is that cool? And turns out that was cool, <laughs> which is still like, <laughs> we can't believe it. It's wild. So you, you talked about Cisco. You talked about Data. Uh, can you talk about some of the other characters that have been revealed that are members of your cast? Absolutely. Uh, in the medical bay, we have arguably our third most important cast member, which is Beverly Crusher. Um, we wanted to bring her onto the table because she is uniquely suited uh, to a have an interest in God level be in mortals who have become God level beings uh, through her sweet summer boy uh, Wesley Crusher. <laughs> but also, uh, the neat thing about Beverly Crusher is that she is a mad scientist. More than anyone else, any other doctor of the series, of the shows, she's the one who is almost more thrilled not to set bones, but to explore an absolutely deadly plague that's ravaging a planet. Um, she's kind of weird, uh, which is absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And we realized what just absolutely clicked amazingly with, um, with, with Cisco's goals, especially since he is obviously now a mortal who has been transformed into a god. Um, what a better case study for what happened to her son. So it seemed like a really exciting medical mystery for her to go down. Um, at Helm, we've got uh, Tom Paris, the best flyboy in the galaxy. Um, we knew we wanted somebody from Voyager. We wanted this this book to basically have at least one person from every Star Trek series that we could manage, um, or at least a, a sort of hit hat tip. We used a we used more TNG than uh, anywhere else, but I, th I think that's just because we are just deep TNG and DS9 fans and it just comes from that. But um, we're bringing Tom Paris over from Voyager because if anybody's gonna fly your crazy experimental vessel, it better be the best test pilot in the galaxy. Um, so he really feels like your your, your top gun guy when it comes to, uh, to the Star Trek universe. Um, plus he's got a really interesting like reintegration plot line going on right now because he's been out in the wilds with Voyager for so long. So he's kind of more comfortable on a ship than he is in, in any kind of home life. Uh, he's also, unfortunately, the person, the character I've modeled most of my personality off of, uh, which is, trust me, not not great. <laughs> <laughs> Mistakes were made, my friends. As your Harry Kim, let me just uh, assure you, it's it's totally fine. It could be worse. You could I, be I Harry have, Kim. I have deep set plans for Harry Kim. So anything <laughs> stands out there, trust me, I got your back. I, uh, you're, I, I'm eyeing you. Uh, we have uh, we also have two new characters um, that we're bringing in. Uh, we have um, Ensign Lily Sato, who is a uh, seventh generation Starfleet brat who can trace her ancestry back to Hoshi Sato, the first communications officer and the inventor of the Universal Translator uh, on Enterprise. She is our link to Enterprise and to the sort of like deeper Star Trek lore of that series. So we're not forgetting Enterprise, we're, we're trying to have as many sort of links as we can. She was also a uh, classmate and direct contemporary of um, uh, of Ensign uh, 
Beckett Mariner from Lower Decks, uh, a character who uh, I'll just say overtly, we wanted to use in this book. And uh, Mike McMahon, who is an old friend of ours and, and who we go way back with, we all went to the Discovery premiere together back before any of us were working on Star Trek. Um, we called Mike and we were like, can we use Mariner? And he was like, honestly, it really doesn't vibe with what I have planned for Mariner. So like, no, because it's a prequel, obviously. Um, but uh, but here's maybe some ways that we can tie Lower Decks in, which is what we're going to be doing. Uh, there's some stuff to come in that regard. Uh, and uh, we have uh, Ensign Talir. Uh, Talir is a non-binary Vulcan character with um, some mysterious uh, ties to the original 60s series and to uh, Spock uh, in general. And so we're gonna be uh, getting into that, but uh, uh, think of Talir as our books Spock uh, for now. Um, and, but, uh, younger and, uh, you know, it's their first time out of dry dock. So they're both our, our, our vision of, of logic and also to some degree, our vision of wonder. They're the one who hasn't been out there seeing this stuff up close for the first time. Um, so there's, uh, there's some interesting, they're a really fun perspective to hit because it's not like writing Spock, uh, but you get to do those beats that are so fun when you write Spock where uh, they get to say, you know, as you can tell, I'm very talky. I love using 50 words when I could use five. Spock taught me that. So, <laughs> one last quick Star Trek question, because uh, it's my favorite of the series. I have mine. Favorite DS Nine episode? I, I have two. I feel like they're everybody's two, but let's see if I'm wrong. Uh, Far Beyond the Stars is maybe the greatest episode of television ever produced. So I, I really just—it's like Far Beyond the Stars. Even if it wasn't a Deep Space Nine episode, it's just a great movie. Like, it's just a beautiful episode of television. Hands down television, right? Top five episodes of any show ever. Yeah. Uh, and uh, In the Pale Moonlight. The, the, yeah, there's mine. Yeah. I think In the Pale Moonlight is, yeah, it's certainly the most challenging episode of Star Trek ever. Yeah. I'm a Garrick head, so... Yeah, get, me too. Yeah. So that episode just sings. Trust me when I tell you we really wanted to find Garrick a place on this ship. It just Ooh, didn't. That, it just didn't fit the mission at all um but uh we have plans for a everyone lot exists. of characters everyone exists in the universe right that's what everyone's like oh well my favorite show but it's like give us time baby like we <laughs> love all of them so if we can fit them in we will um my answer to that one is a little well not serious but uh cordially invited I mean, Jadzia Dax and yeah. War. Like, I am, I am a, I'm a, I'm a Klingon at heart. I've Tom, Tom, Tom Paris's hairstyle and Worf's Klingon heart. Um, <laughs> like my wife is a warrior woman. Uh, I pay, I have a batleth on my wall right now. Like if she would have, if we could have done uh, the whole Klingon ceremony, uh, I would have. Uh, she certainly is the second Klingon heart to mine. Uh, so like, and that episode is just, I mean, Jadzia and Worf are just relationship goals. I think you'll be hard pressed to find a stronger couple in, in any storytelling. And now I'm just getting sad again. <laughs> First you Star Trek, why did you hurt my heart so badly? Uh, I, I would have also accepted The Visitor as, as a favorite. Yes. Uh, well, so The Visitor is actually really interesting because it's one I revisited yesterday. Um, the uh, the Visitor is really interesting because it's our only real indication of the future of Jake Sisko. 
And Jake is another member of our crew, not a sort of traditional member of our crew. Insofar as Jake doesn't have a post, Jake's not in uniform. Jake's not a Starfleet officer, but his book is about Benjamin Sisko coming back from the wormhole. So Jake is on the ship. Jake is our first point of contact. Um, and in fact, it, on, his, on page three of issue one, you will read an article by Jake Sisko because we are we have uh, text pages in this book. We have data pages uh, the way you might in Kieran's, Aven uh, Kieran's Eternals or or uh, Hickman's X-Men run. Uh, we are uh, embracing the idea of being able to show you tech manual pages, uh, cool schematics, something that can bring new audiences up to speed. So in, um, in lieu of having a traditional, here's everything you need to know about Star Trek thing on page zero before we step you into the book, which really we feel would just slow you down, Page three is an article by Jake Sisko that will, in character and in universe and in story, tell you what you need to know to get up to speed on Star Trek if you've never read a Star Trek book or watched a Star Trek show. This, I, this book should be accessible for anybody, and we really want it to be accessible for anybody because we want to bring people into Star Trek through Star Trek, uh, the series. So that's that's where we're at with that. Uh, Jake is a... I, I'm, we're, we're doing a lot of Jake content recently, and I find myself revisiting uh, The Visitor a lot um, because there is a version of Jake that ends up as like one of the great novelists of our time. Right. But does that come only from absence of his father? Like, does he end up in an, a state of arrested development? If he's not, uh, if he doesn't make some kind of peace with his dad, like it's, it's very interesting what that episode asks of, uh, uh of Jake and of uh, Ben. So feel you on that. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic time. Final question before we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with Cap, Star Trek, uh, Batman Beyond, Void Song, everything that you have going on? Ooh, you tire me out when you list it like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, folks can find me on Twitter, uh, C.P. Kelly. Uh, C.P. Kelly. The P is a mystery. And uh, you can find me at Jackson Lansing. That's L-A-N-Z-I-N-G, Jackson Lansing uh, on Twitter or at uh, Found in the Wild on Instagram, uh, where I am less active, but I'm trying to get better. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank hey, you, guys. Our absolute pleasure. You guys take it easy. Really appreciate you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom. Chris is on Infinite Earths and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLast1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. W-N-Q-A. W -N -Q -A.